0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis.
1: And I'm Damian Garde. Adam Feuerstein is out this week.
0: It's Thursday, September 21st, and here's what we're going to talk about.
1: Artificial placentas could potentially save the lives of babies born premature, but how do you ethically test such a technology? Stats' Lizzie Lawrence joins us to explain.
0: And the FDA is taking on a thorny case of a potential medicine for ALS whose supporting evidence has polarized patients and physicians. We'll preview a momentous public hearing slated for next week.
1: All that after a word from our sponsor.
2: I'm Tori Bosch, editor of STAT's First Opinion column and host of the First Opinion podcast.
1: And I'm Jesse McQuarters, editor of STAT Brand Studio.
2: We're excited that STAT is launching a brand new community only for our subscribers called STAT Plus Connect. It's an online home for discussion, news, job postings, workshops, and more, all centered around the life sciences and biomedical research.
1: It's also a chance to peek behind the curtain at STAT and interact with our writers and staff. The people that really bring our great journalism and content to you every day.
2: And in fact, I made a course on how to crack first opinion. I lay out the kinds of essays I'm looking for my editorial process, some writing tips and much more.
1: And I actually made one about step brand studio, sharing a little bit about what the heck a brand studio is in the first place, but also some of the things we do to bring the content of our marketing partners to life.
2: You know, it sounds like I'm going to have to hop on to take your course.
1: And Tori, yours sounds amazing. So I'm going to definitely check out yours at connect.statnews.com.
2: Well, fantastic. I'll see you on Stat Plus Connect.
0: So, Damien, you delved into the contentious story of Neurone this week. Uh, the company has a treatment that's been in development for patients with ALS that involves taking cells harvested from a patient's own bone marrow, manipulating them to secrete proteins that promote nerve growth and injecting them back into the patient's spine. Um, I have a cursory knowledge of what's been happening. Please enlighten me. What, why is this a contentious story? What have been the arguments around neurone?
1: Yeah, neurone has been a saga in ALS dating back a few years now. The uh, manufacturer of the treatment, Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics, Uh, has been subject to a lot of debate, but this is all coming to a head now as the FDA is convening a public hearing um, of expert advisors to hear the cases for and against approving this medicine um, and, as is customary, either render a vote or, at the very least, render their advice to the agency as to what it should do on the question of whether the evidence that Brainstorm has collected merit the approval of this drug. The arguments for and against, I mean, Neuron has been polarizing, but there's a lot of nuance to that polarity. And what I mean by that is this. So so going back, Brainstorm ran a placebo-controlled phase three study of Neuron, testing whether patients who got the treatment um, saw the symptoms of their ALS advance more slowly than those who got placebo. Now, that study failed on its primary endpoint and uh, secondaries as well. It was a negative study, undoubtedly. Now, after the fact, Brainstorm looked at patients in the study, about a third of them, who had mild ALS, whose uh, symptom scores were high, meaning that the, they had to advance as far in the disease as other patients in the study. And looking at them, there appeared to be a difference between placebo and neuron in terms of the response rate measured by, you know, whose ALS scores um, didn't decline at, at, at a certain rate. And that suggested to them that this is a therapy that can help some people. Now, that difference as well did not meet the threshold of statistical significance. But there's a compelling argument given the seriousness of ALS and the dearth of treatments that can provide hope for patients who are diagnosed with this muscle-wasting disease that is fatal generally within five years of diagnosis, that there was reason to at least hear this out. Now, things got messy. We don't need to delve into the full details. But basically, uh, <laughs> the FDA and many experts in ALS told Neuron, you should run another clinical study, one that enrolls only those patients in the early stages of ALS who seem to benefit from the treatment, and confirm the signal that you appear to have seen in this larger study. Brainstorm declined to do that. The company's line was that doing that would delay the potential availability of this medicine. And as I mentioned, this is, of course, a universally fatal disease and patients would die waiting for it. Mm -hmm. That led to a back and forth with the FDA, which clearly had issues with this supporting data and made the kind of extraordinary step of publicly saying to the ALS community specifically uh, why they did not think that the data merited their review, let alone approval Brainstorm filed for approval over the FDA's objection using a a legal process that exists for this. And that brings us to now when finally there will be this public hearing um, and we will hear from Brainstorm itself, which has presented these data before, but will presumably do so in more detail. We will hear really for the first time in detail from the FDA, which we expect they will have serious concerns. Um, about the evidence as they have signaled in the past. And also, as importantly, we will hear a public comment from patients uh, with ALS and physicians who treat them and others in the ALS community, weighing in on why they believe or if they believe this treatment should be approved.
0: Yeah, it's been such an interesting, like, two years for the FDA and ALS treatments. I mean, like, in some ways, this story, like, echoes and it was also playing out around the same time that Amelix was also bringing their ALS treatment to the FDA and the FDA initially like Amelix's co-founders publicly said that you know the FDA initially really wanted them to do another you know phase 3 trial which is you know in neuro that's the the standard is to phase 3 trials um and like in that case it was much less like publicly um debated, you know, the FDA ended up kind of changing their minds and allowing, you know, Amelix to file. Um, this case, I mean, with all of the public debate and how strongly the FDA has said that, you know, that um, Brainstorm needs to run another trial, that this is not something that they think that they should submit for approval. I mean, is the... Is there a world in which this agency and its experts come out of this meeting next week with like a favorable view of the treatment? And do people kind of outside of the FDA, you know, in the ALS world, think that this hearing is is the right thing to do? Or is there still even debate on on this whole issue?
1: That latter point is perhaps the one place where there is consensus, which is that a public hearing of these data is exactly what's necessary. I think people, obviously people who mm. uh, want this medicine to be approved, want that to happen because it is a it is a requisite step in the approval process. But even those who have serious doubts about it um, told me at least that there is no harm. In fact, there is great good to be done by airing this out in public such that you know, whether you perceive there to be deficiencies or promise in the data, it's all on the record and experts can see it and have the conversation in public. And so whatever transpires, there will ideally be more public confidence, more sort of societal efficacy placed upon the FDA's final decision based on the fact that, you know, everybody is showing their cards in this sense. As to your earlier point about, you know, (laughs) whether it would win approval, I think uh, you're right to mention the regulatory precedent We have here. I mean, for many years, patients with ALS and other um, serious fatal diseases, specifically in neurology, were very critical of the FDA, who they perceived to be basically holding too high a standard for medicines for complicated and fatal diseases, such that potentially Mm -hmm. promising therapies were being delayed or even blocked from advancing by the application of a regulatory standard that many people had said was... Just not tenable for something like ALS. The evidence one would need to win a new treatment, for, or to win approval for a new treatment for, for example, type two diabetes, it should be different than for uh, a fatal disease with few and, and at one point zero FDA-approved medicines. Now, since 2019, so the FDA heard those concerns and addressed them publicly and changed its guidance and made promises to be more flexible when it came to these medicines. And I think everyone would agree. Uh, everyone I've talked to in, in ALS, that is, that they have largely followed through on that promise for flexibility. You mentioned the Amelix medicine uh, also yeah. had, I think what some people would say, uh, a debatable data set supporting its efficacy. The FDA chose or agreed to approve it anyway. Um, there's another medicine called Tofersen, developed by Biogen, which is targeting a genetic subset of ALS, so a, you know, a subset of what is already a rare disease um, whose pivotal trial did not succeed on its primary endpoint, but which showed evidence of efficacy that the FDA decided was enough to grant accelerated approval to that medicine. Those are just in the past 12 months that we're talking about now. So people I talk to in ALS who who want neurone to be approved, look at that as a sign that the FDA has heard them and look at it as encouraging for the pathway forward um, for neurone. People more skeptical of neurone would look at those cases and, and see a lot of nuance that differentiates them. Amelix, in particular, as you mentioned, had a dramatic uh, FDA hearing of its own, in which the founders of the company promised to willfully withdraw it from the market if an ongoing confirmatory study turns out to be negative. Um, you know, it remains to be seen whether they'll follow through on that if, in fact, that study does read out to be negative. But an important differentiator there is that there was an ongoing confirmatory study. As we mentioned, Brainstorm has not embarked upon such a study. So there isn't that fail-safe if the FDA were to you know, try to approve this medicine knowing that those data were coming. They, there is no study in progress. And then Biogen, as I mentioned, the scientific underpinnings of that drug uh, I think were much more convincing to experts in the field. And then also, um, as we mentioned before, it was for a subset of patients. So Neuron does not have uh, an ongoing confirmatory trial. And its application, as far as we know, is for conceivably all patients with ALS or perhaps this more mild population, but not a genetically defined population. And so those differences make it frankly impossible to predict what the FDA will ultimately decide here. Now, the FDA has signaled serious concerns about the evidence, as we mentioned before. Um, but I mean, it's, as with anything with with these advisory committee meetings, you can always say like, "stranger things have happened." I I really don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, like the whole neuro field feels like the last few years has been this story of well, stranger things have happened. <laughs> one of the things you, you you mentioned, and you mentioned this in the story, you know, neuron or er, and brainstorm the company is in like a very different financial position than a lot of these other stories that we've been discussing. You know, one of the people that you you um, spoke to for the article, like pointed out that uh, Brainstorm doesn't have the money to launch a confirmatory study right now. They really only can do that if they have some revenue coming in. And the, so that's also kind of like part of this like argument for introducing the product to the market in some way, you know, is to get also some money coming in so that Brainstorm can run this confirmatory trial to confirm whether the product works and whether people should be taking it, which feels like a very cyclical argument, you know, a cyclical thing to me. Yeah. Um, but like, let's say it gets approved. Uh, you know, introducing a product to the market with this kind of contentious backstory, it, it Reminds me of you know, Biogen and shout out to you know bonus points for myself for uh, <laughs> mentioning actually bonus points to both of us for mentioning Biogen on the pod this week. Um, <laughs> uh, you know Biogen with with Ajyhelm and how I mean the physician community was so against you know just didn't believe in the treatment, insurers and CMS wouldn't cover it and we ended up with a really poor drug launch. Is this whole, like, neuron situation just setting up to be a repetition of that? Like, could they even, like, get the financial, the the sales and the revenue to get the finances to run the trial to engage in this kind of cyclical process?
1: No, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, it's impossible to know in part because we do not know how much uh, Brainstorm will choose to charge for neuron if the medicine is, in fact, approved. Um, and we mm. don't know you know, what the reaction will be among physicians and payers. Now, that being said, I think any conceivable backlash would be tempered by the fact that ALS is a rare disease affecting, it's estimated about 30,000 people in the United States. If this were approved only for those with mild disease, that number would be even smaller. Um, it's an important contrast to in the early days of Adjuhelm when people were reacting to Biogen's chosen price for that medicine. That there are yeah. upward of five million people with Alzheimer's disease in the United States, and even and yeah,
0: I should also add, like, amend my own statement that like Agihelm was also dealing with. You know, there was a question about brain bleeding and incidence of ARIA, which it it doesn't sound like there have been any major safety signals from Neuron right. at this point.
1: That is a, an important thing yeah. to note is that uh, yeah, safety is not a major concern, and and also the. Uh, this is with the backdrop, risk and benefit is judged by the severity of the disease. And in in a disease like ALS, patients have been very clear that they are just willing to accept a different risk profile and a different efficacy profile in the context of of how serious and and, uh, unwaveringly fatal the disease is. But the point about the financing is a good one as well. I mean, Biogen, part of the frustration, I think, with a lot of people back then was that that is a well-capitalized, very large company that conceivably could have afforded to run another trial if they chose to. Brainstorm is in a different situation. Um, you know, As we mentioned, their, their stock trades for less than a dollar a share, and their cash reserves, um, as at last reported, were below $10 million. So the, the feasibility, they would need to raise money in the market, or find a way, I should say, to get cash, whether that be through revenue or through the capital markets. And that's a reality, and it's something that you know the FDA is not tasked with assessing the business viability of the applicants before it, but they live in the real world as everyone else does and I think the other it gets to one of the other few consensuses I think that that exist out there among people, regardless of what they think of neuron, is that there needs to be another trial. Nobody disagrees about that. The disagreement is what should happen in between now and the readout of that trial, whether This medicine should be approved, made available, whether it should be rejected and thus remain unavailable to the vast majority of patients, or whether there could somehow be some third way, which I heard multiple people kind of advocating for. Nobody really knows exactly what that would look like, but some means by which the community could get the data it needs from a well-controlled study, but also patients who want Neuron um, and are eligible for it through some mechanism could still have access to it. If the FDA could kind of keep this ball bouncing, such that Brainstorm doesn't go out of business, but you know regulatory standards don't get bent. And I, I don't know what that is. But one thing multiple people have pointed out, in fairness to the capital markets, participants in the capital markets are sophisticated in biotech, right? So you look at, for example, Amelix, a um, company we mentioned before that won FDA approval. At one point, they were an undercapitalized biotech startup run by two guys, et cetera. There's a very charming story. Then they got promising data on their ALS medicine and were able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in an IPO and fund the trials that we're talking about that Brainstorm has not done. Now, it's not fair to reduce everything to a stock price, but it is fair to point out that if Brainstorm had better data, they conceivably wouldn't be in the financial position that they're in. They would be more like Amelix and be able to get investors to buy in. But this is all... I mean. In many ways, this is kind of water under the bridge that we are where we are. (laughs) The the data are what they are. The the money is what it is. Um, But I mean, I guess I note all that just for a glimpse at just how everyone in this process, which has been contentious and has sometimes been quite toxic online, such that there were quite a few people I reached out to who were uncomfortable speaking on the record about Neuron uh, out of the risk that their inboxes and, and Facebook pages and Twitter profiles, et cetera, would be inundated. That's true. But... There is a lot more consensus here than I think would appear just looking at the online conversation. And I think everyone I spoke to, there is a, a clear care, empathy, sympathy, and in, for people with ALS reality. Um, with the situation here and how grave this disease is. And there are a lot of people operating in good faith who happen to disagree, which is a, something I maybe is a good note to end on with this conversation because <laughs> that is an energy that I would like to carry into this advisory committee meeting, which likely will get contentious as well, is that this is a complicated problem. And the one upside is that as far as everyone I've talked to, everyone moving into this problem is coming into it with good intentions.
0: Well, that's... Yeah, let's bring that energy to <laughs> the adcom. And also, thoughts and prayers for your inbox, Damien. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a science fiction movie. Or... Rather, multiple science fiction movies, actually. I'm talking about uh, artificial wombs uh, that could be used and are apparently in development, I learned this week, uh, to help um, premature babies uh, hopefully survive longer and grow into healthy children.
1: Right. So several research teams are racing to develop that technology you've described. And the FDA convened a special two-day panel this week to consider whether it's feasible and ethical, frankly, to test them in human clinical trials. Our colleague Lizzie Lawrence has been covering this space for STAT, and she joins us now to talk about it. Lizzie, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you so much. Excited to be here.
0: We are excited to bring you on. Um, I saw your stories and was like, oh, we've got to talk about Artificial placentas. Uh, so
3: absolutely, yeah,
0: it's terrifying. <laughs> oh, we could get into a whole existential uh, conversation, but we're not going to do that quite yet. Um, first, can you give us a sense of what's happening? Like, what's been happening with development of these placentas up until now? Like, who's involved, and what have they actually been able to show to date?
3: Yeah. So, so there's a, f- a handful of research teams across the globe doing this. Um, there's some, there's one in Australia, there's one in Japan, um, there's one in the Netherlands. Um, but the, the first, the real milestone was in 2017 when a team at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um, showed that they could, it, with their artificial womb, technology, which basically it's like a plastic bag or it looks like a plastic bag and it's filled with sterile fluid um, where the fetus is and they, they tested it on a fetal lamb and kept that lamb alive for four weeks. and and there are kind of there are tubes attached to the bag providing oxygen and, and nutrition uh, or nutrition and all that good stuff. Um, and then there's also a team at the University of Michigan that has um, a device that kind of looks looks more like a pump. But hmm. the Chop team is the one that has made the most progress, and basically, the reason this this FDA panel was held, and they're they've formed a startup uh, called Vitara Biomedical that's since raised a hundred million. Um, so, so they're, they they say that they're they feel that they're getting close to human trials, and the FDA was
1: willing to hear them out. Well, yeah, and before we get to the context of the, of the meeting itself. Maybe if you could explain what kind of real world impact these technologies could have if they were proven to be safe and effective. Like what is the uh, the phrase unmet medical need is such a cliche, but like (laughs) what 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 niche would they conceivably fill in actual real world practice that that makes them so worth studying?
3: About one in 10 ish babies are born premature in the U S. Um, and that rate is even higher in in black women in the U S. And then there's millions born more born way too early worldwide. And then there's a portion of that population of premature babies that's that are born in this 22 to 28 ish week range where, um, it's, it's a smaller percentage, but, um, it's a, it's a, percentage that has abysmal survival rates. So, um, you know, if, if if you're born at 20, about like, I think half of all infants born at 23 weeks die. And then that number drops to somewhere around 10% at 22 weeks. So, and then the problem is that these, when you're that young, your lungs are not developed enough to really, uh, withstand, a the classic incubator and ventilators that we put premature babies on. So there isn't really that this technology would help those babies born way too soon by helping them gestate for a few more weeks until they're ready to go into the standard incubator neonatal care that we have right now.
0: Hmm. I mean that sounds great. It also sounds like it would raise a lot of ethical and logistical questions. Um, One of the things that you pointed out in the article that I thought was really fascinating, um, one of the two articles you wrote this week, is that running these types of tests are really tricky in a logistical sense because it's difficult to foresee which women might end up giving birth prematurely and to get their informed consent for a clinical trial. Uh, What other considerations, you know, will the FDA panel or did the FDA panel
3: dig into? So informed consent was a big one. Like you said, there's just, there's a small stressful window when you can give the, the mother adequate time um, to, ask the, you know, ask as many questions as they want, um, you know, uh, talk to a third party who's not involved with, with the device and, and using mm-hmm. it. So that's, that's a huge one. I would say the biggest question the panel got into is, you know, which fetuses or, or babies you, sh- you should test this out on. Um, there's there, you need to really find the patients that are in that perfect spot of, um, you know, is this a baby that's so sick that they, you know, wouldn't benefit from this technology anyway. That there's really no shot of survival versus uh, some, you know, a, a fetus that has such a good chance of surviving that this it would be incredibly unethical to, you know, sick this, put this um, in- investigational technology on them because they would survive with the the regular standard of care. And there's not been data. Uh, in terms of what this does with development. So the panel also talked a lot about endpoints, you know, their survival, but there's also, this is yeah. someone that is on the precipice of hopefully a long, healthy, happy life. You know, what does it do? What does it mean if you're, if they're gestating for a few weeks in this, not in the real womb, as far as cognitive development. Um, and And there's all, you know, there's just all kinds of questions that need to be hashed out there.
1: So, with all that in mind, I mean, as you mentioned, one of the groups working in this space has said that they feel they're they're quite close to being ready for a human clinical trial. In light of the of the panel and the feedback that panelists gave, how likely does that seem, or, or what was the tenor of it? Kind of looking forward as, in terms of the path forward for for these technologies.
3: I would say the tenor was mostly skept- skeptical. I mean, people were are excited and encouraged by this and, and see the need. But for the most part, it seemed like the experts wanted to see more animal data. That was a big portion of the panel is, you know, none of these fetal animals are perfect for um, are perfect comparisons for, for humans. So they, that, they would want to see a little bit more, you know, maybe data in fetal pigs or fetal primates, um they felt like it was not quite they they were like we we would not for any baby that we were involved with the care of we would not put this you know tell them to participate in this trial yet oh wow and that also i mean
0: another thing that you mentioned you know in the story is that there's also kind of this like very hot button question um that theoretically so a device like this if it works, you know, if it gets approved, if it succeeds, could change the definition of fetal viability that's referenced in a lot of policymaking these days. I mean, what did mm-hmm. you
3: mean by that? Can you expand on that a bit? Absolutely. So, yeah, so the basis of a lot of abortion legislation is, you know, is that, okay, what is the, the cutoff for when we will make it illegal to terminate a pregnancy. And, and that has to do with, will can this fetus survive, survive on its own at this, at this time? Um, so right now, I when I asked, I asked the, the University of Michigan team, um, their thoughts and, and, uh, George Michaliska, the leader there said he didn't think that this technology was capable of changing that Cut off of when the fetus could survive, and right now it's it's 22 weeks is kind of where it hovers, um, 22 or 23 weeks. But um, it's pos- as this technology develops and you know potentially gets better, it's possible that will change. And with that are interesting questions about okay, what is this entity? And and I talked to a bioethical researcher who thinks a lot about this, and she she was saying you know it's not quite. A fetus, because you know it's not part the enti- it's not part of the pregnant person anymore. Um, it's not quite a baby yet. So she, she was calling it just Taitling, But that that came up during the panel as well. And and the ethicist who was presenting said, you know, we should probably hold a conference on to talk more deeply about this, um, because we don't even know what to call this potential patient, you know, this patient who would participate in trials. And, and as I was writing the story too, I was like, fetus, baby, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's tricky. And um, yeah, it gets into kind of those interesting, I guess, more political questions. Um, Yeah.
0: Because I mean, fetus is usually being the, God, I keep on wanting to say like person or like, but, but before birth, it's a fetus after birth, it's baby. Um, This is, I mean, it would be a weird situation where you would have a, baby that was you know some was born but then is put into this fluid and almost kind of enters i would assume like a a state of hibernation while right it kind of grows and develops
3: further exactly so it's it's just it's this weird like liminal space um so there there the panel didn't have enough time to i would say to go into the nitty-gritty of all this but um if there's a conference or another longer discussion about this, I will definitely be tuning in because it's, it's fascinating. And yeah, very interesting.
1: Well, on that subject, as you mentioned, there was a tone of skepticism with respect to the the scientific viability and the data. And then obviously it brings about these like ontological questions about human life. So with all of that in mind, what is the next thing you're looking out for in either the regulatory process or the scientific development process such that, you know, the, the next benchmark to watch for as these technologies progress.
3: Yeah, I I'm eager to see if the FDA, you know, I mean, if they grant the investigational device exception, you know, that would allow Chop um, or other teams to to run human trials. I I don't I feel like that's from from what I saw and heard. I don't think I think that's a few years away. Still, um, I unfortunately, there was a second day of the panel that was closed to the public. Um, and Alan Flake, the leader of the CHOP team, was kind of referencing, oh, we'll be able to tell you you all more about our pig data and um, you know our innovation, our trade secrets tomorrow. And that will give you a sense of when we're ready for this. Um, and unfortunately, CHOP is very media shy. They didn't talk to <laughs> me or other reporters. So um, quick call out, if anyone listening was at that closed meeting or has heard anything you know what to do drop me a line um, but yeah I think this is still you know more than a few years out but we'll see I'll be watching
1: awesome well yeah we'd echo that anyone who wants to share any trade secrets we're all always available <laughs> <laughs>
3: please <laughs> The a general, Send me a
0: an general email. call
3: out
1: <laughs> Lizzie thanks so much for joining us today
3: thank you for having me
0: Does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
1: Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
1: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which science fiction technology you'd like to see put into clinical development. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
0: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
1: See you next week.